morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. Uh, we are in a series um, called The Life of Heaven in our year of authentic community. And in this series, we're calling it The Life of Heaven because Paul basically calls uh, the church in Philippi a colony of heaven. And I know the word colony has all sorts of like, comes with all sorts of trigger warnings for us, but simply it means this. That the Christian community is to be a place where the life of heaven is lived out, where we embody the life of heaven in wherever the church is to exist. And by that, we spread the life of heaven out in a city. Um, I know it's taken on all kinds of horrible, and the church has used it for all sorts of horrible, uh, horrific um, uh, things. And if you read Philippians, it's the, actual, it's the exact opposite of what the church has traditionally looked at what it means to colonize something. Um, it, it literally means for Paul to be like Jesus and give your life for the place that you're in. To, to have the same attitude as Christ who gave up all his rights and gave up his entire life. Now, how do we live this life out? This is what we've been exploring with a specific like, look at how we do that in community. So we're in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18. On the screen it says 18b. Whenever you see that, like someone says 18a or 18b, it basically means the first half of the verse or the second half of the verse, okay? So 18b means the second half of the verse in chapter 18. Uh, in verse 18, second half. And then we'll read all the way down to verse 26. So let me start and then I will pray. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, Paul says. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, therefore die, and be with Christ, which is better by far. But what is more necessary for you is that I remain in the body, remain alive. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. This is um, God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the scriptures that we can come to a place and be formed in the way of Jesus. We pray that by the Spirit that would be um, something done in partnership with what you want, what you're like doing in our lives right now. And how you're making us more of a community, more of a hospitable place, more of, more of a hospitable people. Um, we pray for the sake of the gospel in San Francisco that you would beautify your church and that you would make us like you in every way. So that means for some of us confronting some things and some ways that we've been living or thinking. In other ways, it's comforting us and drawing near to us. Um, in both of those ways, may you receive glory. And would you anoint me? I need uh, all, of, all of my capacities. I want to submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
In this text today, um, the text that I just read, uh, we have the key to Paul's entire life and entire ministry. In here, we find his life mission, his aim, his goal, his purpose, his telos, like the meaning of his entire life is all summed up right here. At the time of Paul's writing, he's in prison in Rome. He's there because he has been preaching the gospel of Jesus. And what that means uh, that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus and why he was thrown into prison is because the, the, the gospel that Paul preached is that Jesus is Lord. And specifically that Jesus is the risen Lord. And there's a few, few reasons why preaching that gospel got Paul thrown into prison in the Roman Empire. First off, Rome is the one who ultimately crushed Jesus by crucifying him on the cross. The cross was a Roman execution machine reserved for criminals of the state to crush them, to humiliate them, to end their regime, to end their, their, their sect or faction or whatever they were doing to crush it. They, they did that with Jesus. It was the way they put an end to criminals and threats of any kind. Now, to say that Jesus is the risen Lord in the Roman Empire was to say that you tried to do that to Jesus, to crush him with your main form of doing that, which was crucifixion, and it didn't work. He rose from the dead. He beat you. He beat you at your own game. Not just that, he conquered even death. So to say that Jesus is Lord means whatever you were trying to do, Rome, to Jesus to shut him up or to appease the Jewish, Jewish leaders, it didn't work. He's alive. So it was kind of like a, like a, like a, a what's up? Like a, no, it didn't, it didn't, it, you know, it was like in your face. Okay, also to say that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar is not Lord. Because that was the common phrase that Caesar is Lord. You would actually, if you're a Roman citizen, worship Caesar as Lord and offer him just a pinch of incense as a praise to Caesar. And Christians that said Jesus is Lord didn't do that. They're like, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. But also, when Paul would preach this gospel that Jesus is the risen Lord, people would come to faith in Jesus and live in radically different ways. Ways that if you read the book of Acts, when, Jesus would preach the when Paul would preach the gospel, people would come to faith in him and it would disrupt the economy. Like people would stop idol worshiping and it would literally disrupt the economy. They would take all their sorcery books and burn them publicly. Like we're, we're not following this way anymore. Uh, they were political threats to the empire because they lived a life that was countercultural. So not only was Paul preaching a gospel that said Jesus is the risen Lord and what you try to do with him didn't work and then Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, but the effects of this gospel were affecting society. And for that reason, Paul was thrown into prison and beaten several different times. He is, at the time of this writing, once again in prison. We believe that he was in prison about four years or more. And he's writing to the church in Philippi and he's thanking them because he received a gift from them, financial gift to provide for his needs. And as he's writing, He's having, in chapter 1, the, 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 the section that we just read, he's having this moment of introspection. He's having a moment of self-reflection. And this introspection is brought on by the reality that Paul doesn't know his future. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Paul is about to face a Roman court. 
He doesn't know when. It could be a year from now. It could be a month from now. And when he goes to the Roman court, he doesn't know what the verdict will be. If, like Jesus, he will be crucified as a criminal of the state like Christ was, or whether he'll be beaten and let go, or whether he'll just be left in prison to rot and die. He doesn't know what his fate will be. And this not knowing, this not knowing about his future, this not knowing about what's, what's, like, what's ahead for him, draws him into some self-reflection and even some soul-searching. See, it's this uncertainty of what lies ahead and, this, and serious reflection on it that causes him to find real certainty that he's building his life upon. It's the uncertainty that causes him to find real certainty. See, for, for most of us, a, a, the major uncertainty about our future can lead most of us into one of three places generally. When we're faced with tremendous uncertainty, that can either, for some of us, it draws us into a place of worry and anxiety and stress over not knowing what's going to happen with our future. And s- stress and anxiety and worry paralyzes us. It, it keeps us from moving forward in life. It, it stops us dead in our tracks and we don't know what to do or where to go. For other people, uncertainty draws us into a place of avoidance and not dealing with life as it comes. Now, these people seem very buoyant and like they roll with the punches of life. But if you scratch a little with these people that don't deal with life as it comes up, they, they either tend not to be very deep people or they've done a lot in their life to numb the pain through drugs or alcohol or sex addictions or work addictions. Now, uncertainty in life can draw us into, into anxiety or avoidance. Or if you allow the pain of uncertainty to do its work, it can lead us to a place of extreme clarity about what life is really all about. This is what the pain of uncertainty does, whether it's a diagnosis, a termination, unexpected life-changing news, a death, or the unsettling feeling of not knowing how life will ever be sustainable. Uncertainty will drive us into one of these three places, anxiety, avoidance, or clarity. For Paul, he was faced with the ultimate uncertainty, whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die. And he becomes so clear about his life that it leads him to write this sentence, which is his life verse, for me, To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live, his his like wrestling with these uncertainty of what's going to happen led him to this moment of just extreme clarity. He's like, you know what? For me to, to, to live is Christ and to die, I get to be with Christ. It's all good. That's clarity. That is extreme clarity. He knows exactly what his life is for and he knows exactly what his death means. Now, The question is, how do we gain this kind of clarity for our lives or maybe even our deaths? How do we get to a place where we're able to say, if you are a Christian, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? How in the world do we get there? Or if you're not a Christian, how do you get to a place where you live for something bigger than yourself that fills you with with your, your life with so much meaning that it brings about tremendous clarity in your life and also comfort and meaning in your death. Now, before we dive any deeper into any of this, I want to get something out of the way. You, like me, might find Paul irritating, <laughs> insufferable. 
I often read the letters and the writings of Paul and find him to be someone that I probably would not get along with, that I would not go have a glass of wine with. He would be insufferable. He has so much tenacity, so much focus, so single-minded that it drives normal people crazy. And it drives us to admire him a little bit, but he's so single-minded. He's he, like, all, all it is, Christ, 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 Christ. And if I die, Christ. If I live, Christ. I'm like, but what about like surfing? <laughs> or golf? Or like a movie? Christ. All of it, Christ. Okay, but okay, I'm going to find another friend now. That, that part, when I get to this verse, I say this. Now, this, to live as Christ to die as game should preach because it's, I mean, it's truth. And it like for all of us, like, yes, yes, to live as Christ. But to be honest, really, to live as Christ, for all of us to get there, it's really hard. Paul, Paul is there. I mean, he's in prison. He's suffering for Christ. And the more he suffers, the more he's like, it's all good. Because the more I suffer, the more I'm like, Jesus, so keep it coming. And if you kill me, it's all good because I get to go be with Jesus. And if I live, I'll just keep preaching Jesus. And you're like, you're... I don't, I wouldn't hang out with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend time with you. But we also kind of admire that kind of focus and that resolve too, because we, I think if we really thought about it, we want that kind of single-mindedness. Soren Kierkegaard said, to be a saint means to will the one thing. Sainthood for Kierkegaard meant to, you could will the one thing, namely God and the life of service to which faith in God calls us. To will the one thing. Now, Paul is quite literally a saint. He's Saint Paul. So he can will the one thing. And what's that one thing? Christ. To live as Christ. To die as game because I get to be with Christ. Now, we might get irritated. I might get irritated with Paul and people like him because if we were honest, most of us struggle with this kind of commitment to a few things, let alone the one thing. In our overstimulated restlessness and even oftentimes our own grandiosity, we are afraid of making permanent commitments. We are, we have commitment anxiety. We are more afraid of making commitments that would even, probably even cost us our life. Most of us, if we think about it, we really struggle to will the one thing in life. I think many of us would love to say that Christ drives all that we do, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to say that. I'm having a hard time these days saying to die is gain. Like, I don't, I don't want to die. Like, I, I just had a baby. Like, I, I want to, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, there was a season in my life where I'm like, go to San Francisco. If we die, we die. Like I get on a plane to go do some ministry thing. If I die, I die. Like I, to live as Christ to die is game. And now I'm like, to live as Christ to die is like, oh, can you wait a minute? Like, <laughs> I want to see her grow up. I, I need to teach her a few things. There's some things I learned in life. Like that sort of thing. Like I, I, I can't, it's honestly right now, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to say to die is gain. I want to say that. To will the one thing. It's a really hard thing to do. So as we look at what Paul went through to gain this kind of clarity and focus in his Christian life, I'd like us all to take a deep breath and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or to take a deep breath and use Paul's hopeful words from last week where he said, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So we might not be able to be completely here yet, but let's just say, Lord, I, I, we want to get here. If you're a Christian in here, you should want to be able to say, to live as Christ, die as gain. How does Paul get this kind of clarity? 
First, notice that Paul had tremendous curiosity about his life. Paul was a tremendously curious person. As Paul is wrestling with the uncertainty of his future, he starts to ask himself a series of questions about life and about death and about his future. And the questions are how he doesn't know whether he wants to live or die. He starts to think about the question, what if, what would happen if I kept on living? If I make it through prison, what will my life be about? If I don't make it through prison and I die here or I'm executed, what will that mean? It's this posture of curiosity about his uncertain future that brings in the clarity of, of what his life is really about. See, oftentimes it's the questions we ask about the world and about God that go on to define our destiny in life. My question that I've been like asking myself over the last couple of years has been, who am I becoming with the decisions that I'm making? With the habits that I'm formed, the things that I do with my weekends, the things that I do with my free time, the things that I do with, with, my, with my money, who am I becoming by doing this? What kind of person am I becoming? Ashley and I are fasting online shopping for Lent. I know I'm not supposed to talk about that publicly because <laughs> of jinx fasting or whatever, but it's a more of a shameful thing than anything, to be honest. The reason why we decided to fast online shopping was because as a family, Amazon was way too easy. It's so easy to order. And I would come home from work and every single day I come home from work, there would be boxes in front of my house. Every, almost every single day. And every Wednesday night after community group, I would find myself downstairs in the garage breaking down 10 to 20 boxes, putting them in a little perfect two by two square so that the <laughs> trash collectors pick them up. And, I'm, and I would ask myself, what kind of person am I becoming by doing this every week? I mean, I was getting really good at breaking down boxes. <laughs> like, I, I only cut my thumb one time, but I was box cutter. <laughs> like a samurai, just like, bam. And I would wrap them up really nice and put them outside like a little present for the, for the recology people. But anyway, I'm not talking about that. I was actually a really good box breaker down guy. But what kind of person am I becoming that, that things are this accessible to me and so easy to get. What kind of, what am I teaching my daughter about the way the world works if I keep doing this, if we keep doing this? These are the conversations. Who am I becoming by, by being an online consumer? What kind of person am I becoming? It's the questions about our own life and curiosity towards that that can wake us up from our own insanity by just asking the question, what kind of person am I becoming? What do I want out of this life? What does God want out of my life? Look at verse 22. Paul's life had boiled down to two simple choices, life or death. Not what is he going to eat tonight? Not what, he, what should he do with his like 401k? Not what city will he put down roots in? It's simple, life or death. And in verse 23 and 24, he says that if I live, that will mean fruitful labor. Meaning, if I go on living, I'll continue to live a life of purpose that will, I am confident, produce fruit in other people's life and for the kingdom of God. If I keep on living, I'm going to keep bearing a fruitful life in this world. I'm going to keep ministering to people and helping people and serving people and going wherever God calls me to go to minister to people. If I keep on living, it'll be fruitful labor. Now, if I die, then I get to meet Jesus face to face. I mean, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. I mean, I live for him. I get to see him face to face. I get ultimate union with him where the Holy Spirit now is a deposit, like a, like a down payment for what will be fully realized when I die. I can't 
I can't wait to see Jesus. And this is his conclusion. I am torn. I don't know what to, to choose. Not because he's suicidal. Paul wasn't suicidal here. He's not saying my life's gotten too hard. There's no way out. He, what, the way he thinks about death is I genuinely, if they kill me, I get to be with Jesus. And he's torn between the two. Now, I also want us to remember that this is actually a mental exercise. Paul actually has no control over this. He's not choosing death or choosing life. This is a mental exercise. He's acting as if he has a choice between living and dying. But remember, he doesn't have a choice. It's not up to him. He's awaiting trial. He doesn't know what his fate will be. He has an uncertain future. But the curiosity, the mental exercise, that's what helps him get deep down there in his own heart to soul searching and a pursuit of what his life really means and what his death will really mean. This is is where clarity comes from. Why does he exist? Why is he on this earth? What is the one thing that his life is for? And as he goes down and he wrestles with these questions, if I was to choose life or death, even though I don't have a choice, well, let's just act like I do have a choice. Life or death, I don't know what to choose because death means union with God. And then life means service to God. So what's the answer? Christ. It's all Christ. And he gets all, he boils all the way down to going, I just live for Jesus. The answer is Christ. I live for Christ. What this curiosity and mental exercise does for Paul is clarify his existence. Because if he lives, then it will, he will keep living for Christ. And if he dies, he gets to be with Christ. And if he continues to suffer, he gets to be like Christ. It's win, win, win for Paul. He just goes, listen, no matter what happens in my life, if the worst thing happens, it's not the last thing because I'll be with Christ. If I live, I get to serve Christ. If they keep torturing me, I get to be like Christ because Christ suffered as well. Now, you'd be surprised what just asking the question does. We don't even often ask ourselves the question. To ask ourselves in the midst of uncertainty, what would bring more of Christ into my life? through this uncertainty? What would be bring Christ into this world more through this uncertainty? By asking ourselves, who am I becoming? Another question that has led me to put away more dishes and other amazing acts of service at home lately <laughs> is I've been asking myself this question. How do I not look out for my own interests right now, but the interest of someone else right now? Just asking myself the question, that mental sort of exercise gets me to go, well, I probably should be doing this, not this. Curiosity in our lives helps us live with a singular vision of life in Christ, which will bring about clarity like nothing else. Questions are so powerful. Ask yourself these questions. Secondly, another thing that that I'd like you to notice that brings Paul into clarity is a focus on community. You know this was coming. You knew this was coming. (laughs) A focus on community. When he's asking his life a series of questions, when he's doing his mental exercise, he keeps his community as the key determining factor for what he wants his life to be about. For a lot of us, myself included, when we think about glorifying Jesus, we often ask we often ask what's best for us or what would help our own spirituality the most. 
So when we say, I want to glorify Jesus, how do I become more spiritual? How do I have more experience of God in my life? And so we think in terms of a quiet time or meditation or more worship music or more podcast or more spiritual direction or more therapy. Now, those things have its place. What I'm saying, my point right here is simply, when we think about growing in spirituality, we typically think in terms of what would be more beneficial to myself spiritually. But Paul frames it completely differently. It's the needs of his community that take priority over his own personal desires. Because when Paul does his mental exercise, he asks himself, what does he really want? And the answer is, I really just want to be with Jesus, face to face with Jesus. Therefore, I would actually prefer to die because if they killed me, I would die like Jesus died. And then I get to see him face to face. I get to be a martyr and I get Jesus. For me, that is the best thing ever. But Paul's a spiritual person. And though Paul's spirituality is deeply personal, it's never individual. He's a member of the body of Christ and the well-being of that community and the progress of the gospel are the most important thing to him. Because what he, re- what he wants personally is to be with Jesus. And that means just, just to die. But what's best for the community is that he lives For many of us, myself included, I I say this with me completely thrown into this. Our devotion, our own devotion to God tends to be far more individualistic. What would be best for me, my family, my walk with Jesus? And it usually concludes, I need more time alone. I need more time doing this. I need more time doing that. I need more care for my own spirituality. But that's not Paul's aim. He literally says he would just rather die and be with Jesus. But he knows that staying is more fruitful. So he says this. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What's best for you is that I remain here. What's best for me is that I die. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is so deeply moving to me. Even now, if I was, I mean, I am, I'm trying, I try to be honest all the time. There's so many times I've thought about changing careers, changing what I do or where I do what I do, how it would be much better for my family, for my career, and even my own sanity to think of a change, to think of doing ministry somewhere else, somewhere easier. But then again, what's best for God's church, God's mission, the gospel in this city? And I have to say before God, when I do that, and Ashley always pushes me toward that, it always means staying here for fruitful labor. And I'm always torn. But what's what's best for not just me? I I admire this, but it's so I I actually have to go through this whole process every almost every year. Because I, like a lot of you, it's living in community, making community like a priority is a is a hard thing to do, especially in our hyper-individualistic culture. Paul though he drives me crazy sometimes, is an inspiration when it comes to this for me. Because there are things that would be better for me, but not for others. And the others should be considered more than me. That's next week, Philippians 2. His community gives him a clarity about his life and what to choose that, frankly, just, about, just thinking about ourselves and our own happiness will never, ever bring. 
When we think about ourselves and make decisions based on ourselves so that we can be happy, it actually never brings about the happiness that we think it promises. But it's thinking about the other. It's thinking about the community that act and, and it's almost a denial of self that brings the very thing you want to in life. When we did our all church survey, one of the questions that was on there was, this was in, De- in December, and the question was, would your community at Reality SF be reason enough to decline moving to another city for a better job opportunity? 66% of you said no. 30% said yes. Four of you said, 4% of you said convince me, I think. That's, I think that was the, said I don't know. That means convince me. Okay, so 66 said no. Now, why, here's, here's, the, here's the question. Why did we put that question in there? There was a, an article in The Atlantic um, a couple weeks ago called Workism is Making Americans Miserable by Derek Thompson. Um, an amazing article. Google it. Find it. Workism is Making Americans, Americans Miserable. Here's some highlights from this article. Work has morphed into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism. What is workism? It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. There is nothing wrong with work when work must be done. And there is no question that an elite obsession with meaningful work will produce a handful of winners who hit the workist lottery, busy, rich, and deeply fulfilled. But a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. We've created this idea that, that the meaning of life should be found in work, says Oren Cass, the author of the book, The Once and Future Worker. We tell young people that their work should be their passion. Don't give up until you find a job that you love, we say. You should be changing the world, we tell them. That is the message in, in commencement addresses, in pop culture, and frankly, in media, including The Atlantic. But our desks were never meant to be our altars. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy tens of millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. It's hard to self-actualize on the job if you're a cashier, one of the most common occupations in the U.S., and even the best white-collar roles have long periods of status, stasis, boredom, or busy work. This mismatch between expectations and reality is a recipe for severe disappointment, if not outright misery. And it might explain why rates of depression and anxiety in the U.S. are substantially higher than they were in the 1980s, according to a 2014 study. The problem with this gospel, your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anyone more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. But the overwork myths survive because they justify the extreme wealth created for a small group of elite techies, Griffith writes. And this is it. This, uh, this paragraph right here. There is something slyly dystopian about an economic system that has convinced the most indebted generation, speaking of millennials and their college debt, the most indebted generation in American history to put purpose over paycheck. Indeed, if you were 
designing a black mirror labor force that encouraged overwork without higher wages, what might you do? Perhaps you'd persuade educated young people that income comes second, that no job is just a job, and that the only real reward from work is the ineffable glow of purpose. It's a diabolical game that creates a prize so tantalizing yet rare that almost nobody wins, but everyone feels obligated to play forever. So that's the end of the article. It's longer than that, but those are some highlights for you to feel good about your life. <laughs> so why was that question in that survey? It was not to make you feel guilty. It was actually, first of all, it was to, to gather data, obviously. But it was there to hopefully plant a little seed in your mind, maybe an inception moment, that work isn't everything. That your work will not bring about the meaning and the purpose that you so desire. It's a game made up probably by VCs and CEOs to keep you working and working. Now, you may be thinking, wait, wait, but it's my job that brought me here to the city. That's why I'm here. Yes, thank you, God, that he brought you here through your job. But oftentimes in life and maturity, what got you here won't be the thing that gets you to where you ultimately need to be going. You need community for that. You need community for that. And not just community, but a relationship with God that can turn any uncertainty in your life into indifference to anything but God's will. This is where Paul comes to. Look at verse, lastly, 20 and 21. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage when he faces the court. So that now as Christ, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul got to a place in his life where he just wanted Christ to be glorified in it. He was indifferent to what that meant. I could live, I could die. I actually want to choose life because it would mean more, more ministry to you. But I'm, to live as Christ, to die as gain, whatever happens, I just want Christ to be glorified in my life. How do you get there? Martin Luther King Jr., in a speech given in Memphis, Tennessee, on the night before he was assassinated, said this in his speech. Sounds very similar to what Paul is saying. I don't know what will happen to me now. I've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place but not, I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight, we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the Lord deeply prophetic words in his last speech before he was assassinated. What I believe the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, and Dr. King have in common are they had a vision of Jesus. 
They had a vision. They lived their life from a place of vision. They lived their life from a place of focus. They lived their life from a place of this is the one thing, God's will. Martin Luther King said, I don't really care what happens to me now. I just want God's will. That, that, that was the vision. For Paul, it was when Jesus met him and knocked him off his horse and said, follow me. For Martin Luther King, he talks about when he went to the mountaintop and he saw the future. He saw what was possible in this life or the next. Getting a vision of God will come differently for everyone. But first, I'd like to say you must be open to it. And then once you have it, not to let yourself off the hook from what you saw. I think a lot of us might have had a vision of Jesus in summer camp in junior high. But you lived a lot of life between junior high and now. And so you, don't, you, don't, you discount that, that voice. You've let yourself off the hook from what Jesus called you to. Some of you had it in college. Others maybe very recently. Where you had a vision, a, cl- a clarity moment with God. It doesn't matter when it happens. What matters is not allowing yourself to be unconvinced of it or persuaded out of it by the insanity of our world or the allure of tech money to like seriously go, this is what my life is about. And I, if, if I've gone insane and like made it about something else, I need to get back to the vision that God's called me to. So ask yourself this question and be open to God's spirit as you do. When was the last time you had a vision of Jesus? When's the last time he spoke to you in a moment of clarity When was that time? And no matter how long ago it was, what was it? What did he say? And are you doing what what he said? And if not, go back. There's these moments that I think that God gives us of extreme clarity where he doesn't, I don't think he lets us off the hook. I think that we will show up one day and like, remember in 97 when I told you that thing? Yeah, I think I remember that. That, You're like, but you never talked to me. He's like, I talked to you then. You didn't keep speaking to me. I spoke to you. You just, like, do, do the thing that I, I called you to do. This is, like, what your life was about, supposed to be about. I think, I think for every single Christian, we have these moments of clarity. For some, it's super, super clear. For others, it's clear to us. But I think in our spirit, we know it. And it's to discern that and to go back. And if you haven't had that moment to ask God, God, give me clarity. Give me clarity. And let me ask really deep questions about my life right now. And let me get deep, deep down to like what my life, what my life should be about. Would you, if you could, um, close your eyes. Let's be, be still for just a moment as we move into a time of prayer. Close your eyes. Would you open up your, 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 your hands to God in a posture of openness to him, of, of awareness of him even right now? As you do, uh, if you could take a deep breath and kind of relax into whatever tension you might have had during the last few minutes of this sermon. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come now. Bring clarity, Lord. Use our memory, God, our feelings of nostalgia, our moments of connectedness to some feeling that we felt way long time ago where you gave us this, like perfect clarity about our lives. 
kind of getting a vision of a lot of the, the, our walls in San Francisco, if you live in an apartment or a home that have 90 years of paint on them. And there was like this original thing that the architect thought of, the color or wallpaper that was originally on the wall. And God wants to like tear off all these layers of stuff that you've painted over to get back to that thing. Lord, would you give us vision for out here just floundering, just making money, eating really good food, meeting all kinds of people, enjoying this like life here and we've just lost our place, just like forgot the small voice of God, forgot why we're here, forgot the vision that you've given us. Would, would, would you dust off that vision? Would you bring it back, Lord? And would you use this community to pour into that? Would you use this community to refine that? That our vision wouldn't even be about ourselves, but about those around us. Come, Holy Spirit.